ladies and gentlemen, catchers of all ages, and to our listeners around the world, it's time for the only podcast live catchers, The Mound Visit, with your host, Tyler Goodrow, Chris News, and CJ Medlin. And honestly, after the mound first is Tyler Goodrow. Hey, welcome back, everyone. It's about the start of any number two. And before we get going, we want to give a big shout out to our great friends and partner over at All Star Sports, the premier enhanced quality catching equipment. If you're looking to enhance your receiving game, go on over to their website, www.all-starsports.com, and you will find an array of great training gloves, anywhere from the donut to the equalizer to the Focus Framer, or even the glove that was designed by our very own Chris Snooze, the Pocket. All-Star Sports is on the leading edge of sporting goods technology. In the coming weeks, we will have one of its founding fathers of this great company. So stay tuned. All right, now let's get rolling with any number two. All right, everybody, we're back here with any number two, and we're joined by a very special guest, Gary Bennett. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. So, so Gary, I'm going to start off with probably the hardest question that you might have to answer today. All right. And that is, how much did Chris Snooze pay you to come onto our show? <laughs> uh, I think I actually owe him. I reached out to him and said, hey, man, get me on this. And he was hesitant and he played hard to get for a while, but he finally agreed to get me on. Well, we're, we're excited to, to talk to you and kind of chronicle your, your journey through uh, professional baseball and just kind of take us back through um, where you started, um, where you got to, uh, some highlights of your, your career. And I know we're going to talk about that 2006 World Series championship. Um, but just, just give us a background of who you are and, and what you're doing now. So grew up just north of Chicago. Uh, I was fortunate enough I had opportunities to go play collegiately at a few places. Ended up getting drafted by Philly in 90 in the 11th round. Uh, went back and forth with them for a day or so and decided to give this, this professional baseball thing a shot. So uh, Meyer Leagues, rookie ball in 90. Worked my way through the, through the system. Uh, and then just caught some good breaks and had some good coaches and fortunately had a little bit of talent. Uh, caught a lot of luck and, man, I, I was made a career out of it and, I really have zero complaints, man. The game's given me everything I have. What was your, uh, what was your first call-up to the major leagues? Uh, 1995. Um, I believe I was in double-A, and then I got called up to triple-A. Le- Mike Lieberthal got called up to the big leagues. I got called up to triple-A, and then uh, I think somebody, maybe Lenny Webster, or someone tweaked an ankle, and then I got called up uh, to the major leagues for that September of 95. And I'm always curious to know, um, just by anybody that gets called up, you remember your first at bat and your first hit? And, <laughs> and, and, and how about, you know, just the, the first pitcher you caught at that level? Yeah, I, I remember the first at bat well. Um, and this is a family show, so I'm going to do my best to, to, to keep it clean. <laughs> and, um, well, we, we, we can put a parental advisor out there that you have to be yeah, no, have, have to parents to listen. <laughs> we, we don't need to do that. Uh, so first at bat was against David Wells. Uh, I was in the bullpen, fifth or sixth inning at the vet in Philly, and the phone rings. So I grabbed my mask, grabbed my glove, thinking a pitcher was going to get up to warm up. And then uh, the bullpen coach, Irish, as everybody called him, I yelled down, hey, Bennett, you're hitting. And, and I looked at him, 
and he had used a few other words and said, basically, get your butt down the bullpen or down the dugout as quick as you can. You're hitting. So I go under the concourse, run under the sta- uh, stands, get down to the dugout, and uh, Kevin Elster's hitting eighth. He's playing short. And I'm, pin- I'm hit pinch hitting for the pitcher, hitting ninth. So by the time I get my batting gloves on, helmet on, I can't feel my legs. I'm shaking. My heart's about to come out of my chest. <laughs> and at the vet, you walk up these steps out of the dugout. And as soon as you do, the fans are right over the dugout, like breathing down your neck. And, and Philly wasn't very good then. So there might have been 18,000, 20,000 in the stands. You could hear every word everybody said. And then I, this guy's giving Elster a hard time. He's yelling at him, Elster, you're a bum, using a few other choice words. He's all over him. And as I'm making my way up the steps and get out of the dugout where I'm in, in sight, all of a sudden he just gets quiet. He goes, Bennett, who the hell is Bennett? And a little backstory <laughs> at this time, it's in the sixth inning, and David Wells is throwing a no-hitter. And uh, he then yells out, David Wells is throwing a no-hitter, and we're sending up Bennett. Great. And he used a few other choice words. So uh, I remember that. <laughs> And then I went to the plate, uh, was up 2-0, threw a fastball down the middle. I took a good, healthy cut and uh, hit it off my knuckles over our dugout, over the first base dugout, fouled another ball off, and then took strike three and walked back to the dugout. That was my first at bat. <laughs> not, not too many people can say, though, that they've uh, got to face Boomer Wells. And, you know, he was a, he was a great pitcher. And let's uh, go, go into, do you remember your first hit? Uh, yes, it was off uh, Scott Sanders in San Diego. It was my first start. So, yeah, a slider, thankfully, he, he left over the middle of the plate. He hit my barrel, and I, I hit it between short and third, uh, the Tony Gwynn 5-5 hole, uh, oddly enough, while Tony was out there, and that was my first hit. Wow. That's awesome. Hey, Gary, since, uh, since both of us came up with the Phillies, who was the uh, – who is your favorite, I guess, the guy that influenced you behind the plate the most? I know we had a bunch of catching guys, catching coaches that were also catchers floating around that organization with, you know, guys like Don McCormick and uh, Floyd Rayford, Glenn Brummer, There's a few more of them out there too. But who was the one that kind of, uh, you know, kind of took you aside and, and gave you some tips to help you, help you uh, improve every year? So uh, I think uh, Glenn Brummer and Don, Don McCormick, I think uh, hopefully you feel the same way. Um, they were huge to me. I mean, they, they, mm-hmm. they put it any, any, any time I wanted to work, they'd meet me out there. They had some good insight. They were both guys that had to battle and, and scratch and claw for everything they got in the game. They weren't overly talented. And, and, and Snoozer, I think you and I fall in that category. We just grinded and, and tried to get whatever we could get out of the game. Yep. And, uh, but uh, I remember early on, I was scuffling my second year, and, and McCormick pulled me aside and, and just gave me some tough love and a little kick in the, in the rear end and, uh, you know, said, go figure it out, man. Otherwise, you could think about doing something else in life. And uh, Brum, Brum was always great because he kept some, uh, like, a uh, little comic relief. That was a know, different that, cat right there. <laughs> totally different cat. I mean, he had a different way of teaching and, and always uh, brought fun and, and, and a, a level of joy to what he was doing. He always had a good time. And some of the stories, yeah. I mean, some of the stories, you couldn't tell if he was telling the truth or not. But th- those two were huge. In my just so, just so CJ and and, um, and Tyler, so Glenn Brummer was an old, he was an old vet. He had giant, giant paws for hands. Meat and, paws. And uh, my Lord, I mean, those are some of the biggest hands I've ever seen. 
but he would always, he was our coach my, my rookie year, and he would walk around with a gun, with a, a bat like it was a rifle, and he would lay <laughs> down and pretend that he was having Vietnam flashbacks, and we didn't know if he was serious <laughs> or not, you know, but I, I'll tell you what, he was, um, you, you know, he was my coach again in 97 up in Clearwater, and, you know, as a, as a backup catcher, you know, you always, you get frustrated when you don't get the opportunity or you get your at-bats and you're trying to go in there without playing for a week. And he took me aside and he told me, he's like, he goes, Snoozy, nobody cares about that wooden bat in your hands. He goes, if, if you can catch, that's what we want you to do. He goes, you got eight other guys in the lineup that are supposed to hit and their jobs depend on it. He goes, your job doesn't depend on you hitting. It depends on what you do catching. And as soon as that, he like hit me home, I was like, okay, you know, then I guess it was kind of a, brought me a quick piece and got me over the Mendoza line for the season, so I was happy at that. <laughs> isn't, uh, isn't it crazy how some the, you see the, the evolution of the game over the years since that conversation that you had with him? Uh, you saw kind of like an importance of the, the offensive side become more prevalent with the catchers as the years progressed. Is that something that you kind of saw as you started getting through your career later in, in life? I mean, there are guys like Yachty and, and Pudge that came up that could pretty much do everything while you were playing and to see all that, but you know, there was, it seemed like there was a little bit of a downturn where defensive wasn't as, as prevalent as it was the offensive side for, for the catching position for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was, you know, a couple guys, uh, you know, I, I wasn't around. I don't think any of us were around to really see Johnny bench. I, I know two of you weren't cause you, you both of you are a little younger than Snoozer <laughs> and I, but uh, <laughs> apparently he, he could do it from both sides of the ball. Um, you know, Mike Piazza was an incredible hitter. Uh, he was more of a hitter than a catcher. Um, Yvonne Rodriguez, incredible hitter and catcher, both sides of the ball, Buster Posey. So I, I, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say. I, I think at some point you have to, as a catcher, obviously, unless you're an incredible hitter, which there's very few of us, your priority is behind the plate. But then you have to have the ability to be somewhat dangerous every now and then or, or put together competitive bats. Uh, to keep moving up and, and, and stick around in the big leagues. And I, and I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. That was one thing I always provide. Like, you know, I always liked what Tony LaRusso said about what Yachty, you know, what he provided to the game for them. You know, like he's like, I didn't care what he did for us, you know, offensively at the moment because what he does for us behind the play. But, you know, as you see his years progress, how much of a, a solid hitter that Yachty became learning to hit the, you know, learn to become, you know, who he was as a hitter. He learned what he could and couldn't do and just and learn to just take that, take that role and, and run with it. No question. He's, he turned himself into a, a, a very, very good hitter, no doubt. And, and defensively, you know, you bring him up. And uh, in my opinion, no one's ever done it better. Now, I'm not saying he's the best. He's number one. But there's a group of number ones, and he's in that number one. He's, he's just watching him day out. His work ethic, uh, the attention to detail, to the things that if you're not a pitching coach or, or, or another catcher, you really don't notice, you know, mm-hmm. once the game's going on and he – He's just his work ethic and, and he, what he cares about is, is second to none. You know, he, yeah. it's just it was awesome playing with him, watching him go about his business for two years. Yeah, I got a I got a buddy of mine, uh, Pete Cosma, that's actually from the high school mm-hmm. I graduated from here from Oklahoma. Uh, he would he would rave about Yachty's attention to detail, about being able to set a defense or a situation without really even standing up. I mean, just by the fact of way he could the way he would set up behind the plate, what he'd do with his hands, how he could set up and move. I think that's a lot of detail that's lost in, in a lot of younger uh, of the generation of kids game growing up they forget how important that stuff is you know that you're as Goodrow calls it the field general you know which that's what you got to take charge in and so Gary who are some of the other catchers I mean you're you're with a number of different teams 
Um, if I can remember correctly, it was it was eight, I believe. Who who are some of the other guys that you were with up there? You know, and and what did they kind of bring the table? And you know, so uh, early on, Lieberthal. You know, we were both drafted yeah. the same year, and I and then I would sit behind him year, every year as we moved up, uh, and then got to spend some time in Philly with him. But before that, Benito Santiago was there. Uh, my first call up. Or second call-up, rather. I'm sorry. So he was there in '96, uh, mm-hmm. getting a chance to watch him a little bit the way he went about his business. Um, but Lieberthal was great because he was uh, similar to Yachty in, in their work ethic. You know, it was not a whole lot of flash. Just go get the, get the job done. Um, just grind it out behind the plate. Had a couple years of ridiculous production offensively. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. But defensively, he was just incredibly solid. Blocked well, received well, threw well, uh, managed the game. Um, let me see, moving on from there, where'd I go after Philly? I went to, uh, I was traded to New York. I was only there a short time with, uh, you know, Piazza was there. Um, was there two weeks, then I went to Colorado and then I was kind of split in time and then had the number one job for one year in Colorado, then split time again in San Diego, uh, uh, San, going back Sandy Alomar. So at the end of, uh, 2002 in Colorado, uh, the, the Rockies traded for Sandy Alomar and, um, so he and I split time at the back end of uh, 02. And then just getting to pick his brain, obviously the, c- the career he had, if he, if he could have stayed healthy, oh, yeah. uh, would have been in, in line, I think, for Hall of Fame uh, conversations. But he just had a, a ton of health issues. Uh, big, big, like 6'4", big, strong fella. Uh, a lot of moving parts back there. And then some of them got tweaked more than they should have. Uh, so he was great to talk to and learn from and pick his brain. Uh, then Brian Schneider, he and I split time or I shouldn't say split time. I backed him up. He caught more than I did. Yeah. Yeah. I was with Schneids and with, with Montreal. Montreal, That was, that was in Washington then, right? Yes. It was the first year in in 05 with the nationals. Uh, then, then in St. Louis with, with Yachty for Mm -hmm. for two years. And then, uh, I was finished up in LA with Russell Martin. Nice. So, but but I think a lot of good guys there. Oh, yeah. Sandy, uh, Lieberthal, and, and probably Lenny Webster and uh, Benito were, were the guys I, I just tried to soak up as much knowledge from and watch how they went about their game and their preparation. And they were huge for me. Well, Jerry, yep. I want to ask you a quick question on, on some of those guys. What was the biggest takeaway you learned from any one of those guys that you took along with you through your travels to team to team? Uh, talk, talking to Benito a little bit, and obviously he was – he had the uh, the talent to go along with it where uh, he would talk about not letting things uh, kind of fester or bother you too much. He was so laid back and just, you know, good, bad, and different. If I had a bad game, you know, he'd come up and, you know, don't worry about a kid and get him tomorrow or, you know, in the next three days if I had a shot to go. Uh, but just just the ability to, to stay even keel, I think he, he was very good at that, but he was also ridiculously talented. Something I, I can't uh, uh, relate to is the ability he had. Um, Libby's work ethic, you know, just coming up with him through the minor leagues, never complained. Uh, you know, he get beat up, he caught a lot. Just you never heard him complain or, or, or moan or do any of that stuff. He just kept consistent with his work ethic and took beating and kept moving forward. Um, and then Sandy was was uh, talking to him a lot about this, just the game preparation. You know, along the lines of what CJ said, the field general. Um, he helped me a lot with with uh, taking charge behind the plate because I was still unproven and, and, and somewhat young for major league experience time when when I was with him. Um, and, and he helped me learn to really embrace that and run with it. You know, and, and when you need to speak up, speak up. Or if you need to show a certain body language, and then you need to do it because all eight of your guys are looking at you. 
Um, so that, that's some of the things I would, I would take from those guys. And Yachty was just his, his preparation to detail and work ethic, man. First one to the clubhouse, spring training. You know, we'd get out there, work out 6.37 in the morning. He's the first one there, ready to roll. Uh, road trips, first one in the clubhouse, looking at game films, scouting reports. Uh, his, his work ethic was second. And a lot of that certainly comes from his brothers. You know, uh, Jose and Benji probably obviously schooled him well, and, and, and he ran with it. I want, to, I want to get into something then, a little touching on that. So all of us know the – the amount of detail that goes into before a series, whether it's, you know, the minor leagues or major leagues, you have your meetings with your pitchers, your pitching coach, your scouting reports. What did, because a lot of the, a lot of the people listening will just see the stuff on television and they're like, wow, you know, they had a good plan or this this pitcher's on, on point today. What are some of the things that you can say that you guys did at the big league level when it, I know the, the scouting reports are, are obviously there for you or, you know, in the minor leagues were kind of like, okay, who knows who and who, who knows this guy from that team and how did he hit? Did you ever play with them? You know, how, how in depth is the, is the information up there? It, it's certainly a lot more in depth than, than we got uh, coming up through the minor leagues. No, no doubt about that. And, and also you're working with, with pitchers who are able to execute a game plan. If you set it up, if you're doing stuff in the first inning to set things up in the, you know, second, third, fourth at bat, when use a Gary Sheffield, for example, you might do stuff to him, uh, in his first or second at bat with, without any damage on, on, on the base pass that you're not going to tip off where you're going to do his third or fourth at bat if it comes up uh, with, with damage or with a chance to change the ballgame. Um, so from that side, it was, it was a lot easier because the pitching staff as a whole had a lot more command of, of their stuff and their stuff was a lot better. So our job as catchers got easier, actually. Um, and then just the communication with them, uh, pregame, what we want to do, who we want to avoid, who's hot, uh, has anyone changed what they're doing in the last week or so? Because the reports are typically the series before you see them, so they're up to date. Um, and, and, you know, and, and tendencies, you know, ahead by an even, late in the game, what guys are trying to do. It's probably a little even more detailed now down to percentages of what the three-hole hitter uses Sheffield. What does he do against a one-two curveball? You know, they probably have percentages of what he does and where he hits the ball 90% of the time. We didn't get that crazy, but we did mm-hmm. have spray charts. We had tendencies, as you do in the minor leagues. It just was – it was a lot more fun to game plan because the pitching staff, uh, you just had a lot more tools to work with, and you knew they were going to be more consistent in executing. You look like you did pretty good. You had a 991 fielding percentage overall, so you got some pretty good I'll t- I'll uh, take that. tools no going that. Yeah. Over, <laughs> over that, a career, illustrious career, man, 13 years, 991. That's, I'll, anybody will take that, man. That's awesome. No, I'm, I was fortunate, man. I have no complaints, no doubt about it. I mean, I obviously they played with and against hundreds of guys more talented than I was, so I have no complaints, man. I talked about on our last podcast, and and it's a hot topic for a lot of people out there. And I think we talked. I think we, if you heard our last podcast about the one knee transition for everybody, here we go. Let's get and, into it. And, hey, <laughs> hey, just just what your thoughts are on all this? You know, what I mean, because uh, just heard you know what that. you're talking about. Because no, I heard you. No, I'm kidding. No, you know what? Go ahead, CJ. I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean oh no, you're me. good. <laughs> just to warn you, I did listen to your last podcast. I got some notes here. I wasn't joking. I got a scouting report. I got all things ready to go here. So I love it. Prepared. Let's, let's prepared. dive into it. it. <laughs> oh, here we go. Catcher, right there, folks. That's hey, there you go. Hey, we're take, uh, take your notes pregame. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Me, um, you know, and and I was at uh, what was the ABCA. I was in Nashville this year. Listened to a few things. Um, God, where, where do you want to start? Um, CJ, I, I love, I love what you said in, in your first podcast when, when, um, you said it's situational, which I couldn't agree with more. 
You know, I, I was uh, in Houston this past week watching SEC and ACC uh, play some, some games. Um, and I've watched some stuff on TV and on the internet and, and some catchers sitting in one knee uh, for, for, let's say, 90% of the pitches they receive. And, and uh, I saw some balls get away from them. I saw some balls that needed to be blocked that weren't controlled. Uh, I saw a lot of, I, I saw a lot of slop, and part of that could be they're trying new things with the one knee down. Part of that could be we're still uh, early in their season and they're not, you know, as fresh or as game ready as they will be. But uh, I, I personally think it's used too much. Um, I do agree. I think there's a place for it, but why? Why are you trying to catch on one knee? What's the benefit? So let's let's start there. What what are we trying to do catching on one knee? Things I, I've noticed just a little bit as far as I think if you're getting to the interim with some younger guys that are just starting to get behind the plate, um, teaching them to use their hands to learn the mobility of the way they got to move with their hands, not try to use so much of the body because this really what was taught really early on with a lot of workers kind of sway the ball a little bit, try to move here and move there, sure. shut down a little bit of the movement. Um, it takes away, to me, I think it takes away some of the, the room for error, if you will, you know, trying to take away some of the movements if possible to get them to work on focusing on being able to use the glove and understanding the hands a little bit better. Um, but I think if it, the older guys, like you say, go into situational, but I, I think it, there's a room for it to a certain extent where, you know, I, I talked to JT a little bit before Ramuto, you know, it's such a hybrid. He uses everything from a kickstand to a one knee to a traditional to a traditional secondary to going to a one knee to where he pops up to throw pull the right the right knee up but you're talking about an athlete that is ridiculous far above being, you know, anything yes. some person here really going to achieve at that point the guy was a shortstop uh going to be a quarter was a quarterback going to be going to OSU but you're talking about all these things that he could do that you're, there's just different athletes and and nothing against Tanner Swanson I mean the guy's got his place in the books right now with what he's done that's great but I don't think everybody's going to be able to transition effectively to a one knee because some people are just going to be a little bit different body types and just, it's not for everything. So what would, with, with the older guys and, and, and we can dive into the younger guys stuff too, but with the older guys and, and correct me from uh, older guys, I mean, collegiate level, minor leagues, big leagues, right? One, one knee is giving them the ability to sell the lower pitch. Correct. Is that, is that the main, main point of it? I think that's from what I've, what I've gotten from most of the guys is being able to sell the lower pitch, manipulate it, but also give the umpire a little bit better view, I guess, when they sit on their shoulder compared to, I guess, the, the concussion protocol to where they got to set up. Um, right. That way, I guess, if they move, they don't completely hinder an umpire's view to said pitch. Because I think it's also also on the – if he's using – if the umpire is looking over you, he's, he's using the knee – as his basis for the bottom of the zone. So they take that out a little bit. But Gary, I mean, it, when we played, I think during that time or that era, God, I feel old right now, but it's, <laughs> it's, it, it was more of a side to side. You know, what could we, everyone worked the corners. No one would be caught dead thrown to the middle, you know, middle of the zone, you know, unless it was like Schilling who just lived up in the zone, you know, most of his career. But now it, it's, you know, I fought this for about a year before I finally said the hell with it. I'll, I'll get behind the plate and try it myself to see what it feels like. So I think it's more of, more of a way where guys are throwing the ball. They're not so much worried about the corners as they are, hey, I can throw a ball under the zone three, four inches, let my catcher get it. And the, if the guys hit it, they're only going to hit the ball on the ground anyways. That's, that's what I've taken out of the whole thing over the last year. Like a, 
I think I mentioned this on the last podcast. I may got cut out, but our guys like the the Glavins, the Smoltz, the Maddoxes, they could pitch so far off the corners of the plate, and and now it's like they're getting tired. So everything's working up and down. And to to kind of what go what uh, Chris was saying is that some of the pitching coordinators I've talked to, if you throw anything down the zone, it better move. If it's hard, it better be ninety six mile an hour two seam sinker that runs three freaking feet. If it's up, it better be ninety eight or above. And if it's straight, it better be hard up in the zone. And I think that's probably where that I guess it's transitioned to so with with you know and you, you're talking about up and in, in, in uh, up in the zone or you know four seamers so if here's my question when guys are primarily sitting on one knee we're talking about older guys not younger guys yet um if you've got a guy that pitches up in the zone mm-hmm. what's the benefit of sitting on one knee if you got a, a guy that's a four seam uh in out up in the zone um what's it should uh, spit whatever his out pitch is What's the benefit of sitting on one knee for a fastball up in the zone or a fastball in the corner, up away, or in, in at the belt? What, why would you do that then? And I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just right. – that's what I'm questioning. If no, guys are going to go question. primarily primarily to one knee. No, that's and good. The benefit, yeah. the benefit right. is a low ball. Well, if you've got a high ball pitcher, why are you on one knee? That's, that's, that's right. a great point. Situational no, point to each pitcher, yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I think I, – I don't know if you caught this on the last podcast too, but I li- listed out the top ten – with the statistics for framing this oh, last I, year. I, I caught it, Tyler. Eight of the <laughs> ten, our traditional <laughs> setup. I caught it, buddy. You know, but but I, I truly believe that, yeah, again, per pitcher, what they want to do. And, and I was talking to a kid um, that I worked with who's in the Nationals organization, and Gomes and, and Suzuki, they're not setting up on knees. Uh, they're doing it what their pitcher wants. No and, question. That's, and, that's and the, the next thing. Yep. Yep. You know, it's the target. What are you presenting to that guy? And – that's kind of been my belief. Now, if if it was brought to me and I'm part of the organizational philosophy that we need to try to do this because that's where our pitchers need to throw. So if I'm, you know, the catching coach for the New York Yankees and I got Adam, Adam Adovino who's pitching, who's got a devastating slider that runs away that goes, you know, from east to west, then maybe it's benefit. Am I trying to clip the front part of the corner? You know, um, right. I, I'm of the essence of, okay, and I said this last time, and I'm not trying to sound like you're know, to beat a dead horse, but I'm working for the pitcher. That's no question. Absolutely. And so, yeah, our, maybe we're trying to throw the ball off the plate and not trying to earn a strike because we're setting it up for the next sequence or the next pitch. So am I setting up down? Well, that's great. I give it a visual. Maybe I get a high percentage strike or a low percentage strike that increases the probability to move the ball back to the plate. But what am I doing? How are we attacking this guy? You talked about scouting reports uh, a little bit ago about, okay, what are his tendencies? What was he good the game before at what pitch? And I think, you know, if we're just looking at it from a pitcher's perspective, okay, that's just one bit of piece of information that we need to take from pitching coaches, hitters, you know, what everybody else is seeing. So um, I'm of the essence of two. Yeah. It's situational over transactional or, you know, when when is the right time to do it where am i going to show it and i'm having that conversation with my pitcher do you appreciate the value in the way that i set up on this pitch on this specific pitch or do you want to get underneath his knuckles a little bit and have him sting a little bit and back him off the plate now we can expand it to west you know on the west side of the plate whatever that's just kind of my philosophy on it i just uh i'm with you i'm a little bit on the fence on both sides I think there's different ways that you can set your body up to, to create a better view for the umpire. But I think there's also ways that you can use your knee um, for relaxation. You know, I was a bigger guy. I'm six foot four. 
um, inflexible as all hell. Um, so it would be to my advantage, I think, a little bit. Now, um, where blocking has been devalued, um, and I, we were going to talk about this, I think, a little bit with you with regards to pickoffs and the run game. Okay, well, that's gone way down essentially because of instant replay. Where does that go in play? You know, what's, what's your thought on, on that? So we talk about receiving east, west, up, down, you know, north, south, whatever. How about the, the other essence of, okay, catcher framing is at an all-time high. That's how we're, we're, we're taking the, the gold glove winners now. You know, you got a guy like Austin Hedges. Quantifying the catching position, yeah, so to speak. Exactly. Right, yeah. And we got a guy like Austin Hedges who hit 190 last year, 200, slightly above the Mendoza line. But he's really good at stealing strikes. So where do we go from there, I guess, Gary? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on all this, you know? You've asked real, us questions. We're ready to fire back at you and get your, your <laughs> real quick. I want to ask you. I want to ask you this question along with what Tyler's asking right there. So you've seen you've seen Pudge and Yachty come through catching too, and you see where they would relax the left knee or drop the left knee a little bit when they would set up prior to a pitch, but their back doesn't completely, I guess, sink down so much as they go to a one knee. So when you see Yachty kind of turn corner to a side and drop to one knee, he's still kind of fairly tall with the upper body. He doesn't just completely. I guess, uh, curl his shoulders over his body so deep so he still has a big backdrop. Kind of go from that, when you're going to add to this, why we saw it, why that's, why that's not really used as much now anymore. Like you see Pudge, when he would set up, he would just sink the left knee in a little bit and let the butt and hips drop. Now the dude wasn't 6'2", he wasn't 6'3", he was 5'10 on a good day maybe, yep. right? But he was already a low body, low target, but he still made himself a fairly wide presence when he needed to be, but just the left knee would drop in a bit. If that's what we're talking about, getting a bit lower to work with that lower pitch to get thumb under to work there. And first, just to be clear, I'm not against this. Like I said, I agree, CJ, when you said it's situational, couldn't agree more. And um, if you could lay on your back and catch or stand on your head and get it done, by all means, do it. Um, and I think, CJ, when you said some of those guys with Riotti and Pudge, it, it's, you know, it's your personal preference. What, what allows you to, to get comfortable back there and, and get in a relaxed position and present the ball the best you can. And going back to what Travis said, and, and I, I had a picture in uh, Mark Leiter. was Al Leiter's brother. I caught him in Philly. And he would get on me about not giving him a good enough target with the gloves. Going back to what were the main purpose back there should be to set up how our pitcher wants us to set up, to give him the best visual, to be as effective as he can. So – so part of that, I think, is, is being comfortable back there, too. But, Tyler, you bring up a great point. You need to ask your pitchers how you want me set up here. You know, if I get my, give you my target and my glove, are you starting at my glove or are you trying to finish at my glove? What, what, what are you trying to do here? Where do you want me set? Some guys like a, a big catcher set up real wide to see a small target in the glove to focus. Some guys like to see us uh, real tight like Jason Kendall, and mm -hmm. maybe the glove looked a little bit bigger. So these are conversations, I think, especially collegiate catchers and, and minor league catchers need to have with their pitching staff because they might need to change with whoever their pitcher is. Now, in the big leagues, your pitcher's going to let you know. You know, hey, set up this way. Let's go. That's how I want to see it. So that, that's, I think, a point that's more important than should you go knee down, should you go knee up, when you should go knee down, knee down. Start with your glove on the ground. Start with your glove at your knee. This should all be dictated with a conversation with our pitching coach and I think our pitchers. What you said right there about Jason Kendall is awesome. Cause I, I got to spend a year in big league camp with him with Milwaukee and uh, you know, getting to watch guys like LaCroix who came up behind myself coming up when they did 
Mm-hmm. LaCroix almost had kind of a similar setup to what uh, Kendall did earlier on in his career where he was a little bit kind of a, a really narrowed knee set up with a, with a tall backdrop, but he was very mobile to be able to reach out over his knees really well at the same point because you're not necessarily going to tell a guy to just necessarily set up that way all the time unless yeah. that's they can get there. But uh, one of my one of my favorite guys I got to catch uh, besides Max in, in, in Chicago was Chris Capuano when I was in Milwaukee. Yeah. You know, get to go out early. I One of my best comments I ever got was, hey, I love the way you set up for me. This looks great. I want you catching my pins in camp. Dude, I feel comfortable with you back there. Awesome. You know, then oh, yeah. you get somebody else. I had Mark Rogers, a uh, young guy was coming up, you know, with me as well coming through. He wants something dialed in a little bit tighter. Just the dude throws 98 to 99. You know, I've, I'm going to miss. I need to, I need to know where I'm dialing in at so I don't miss too bad. Um, but I think that's like you're talking about. That's awesome. You know, teaching one way. And I know you guys mentioned last, last your podcast about the cookie cutter approach. And that, that's what gets me frustrated too, is, as I think you mentioned, there was an organization that said they couldn't catch on one knee. And maybe there's organizations say, hey, we want everybody catching on one knee versus let's try both. Are you comfortable doing it? Are you not? And, you know, back to, you know, like a Jason Kendall. Why, why didn't everyone catch like Jason Kendall? Because he was a hell of a catcher back there. So why didn't we force everybody to do that? And I, I think it's very important to, to emphasize what you guys said. It's not cookie cutter. And if everyone's forcing everybody to do try it, by all means, let's try everything. Mm-hmm. But I can't catch like you guys caught. You know, we, we, none of us could, there's other Johnny bench probably caught different Yogi bear caught different, but we got to figure out what works for us and what makes us most productive and effective behind the plate. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And number one, if we're doing something that just does not feel comfortable with your body, if, if you're, if you're a high setup or if, if you know, something is feels foreign, you're not going to be comfortable with a guy that's throwing a sinker or, or a heavy slider you know, and now next thing you know, you're panicking back there saying, geez, I got to get this. And you're putting extra <laughs> pressure on yourself, uh-huh. you know, where you have to be, Hey, this is where I am. This is, this is how flexible I can be for me. I was always, you know, telling the guys, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to get my knees as wide as I can. I'll be upright for you. Just try to hit me in the chest. Let me see if I can, you know, steal you a couple pitches here and there. But there, I mean, we played with other guys that were, you know, you'd see a lot of the guys that would set up and as soon as the pitcher get halfway to you, they would drop a knee to the ground and kind of stab out, you know, on a corner mm-hmm. pitch, you know, and you'd see tons of different styles, but they all happen in a split second where now it's almost like you're seeing it before the pitch is even thrown where there was, you know, there's an art, the way that we used to do it is there is today with, you know, how guys are, are bringing their gloves up, you know, six, seven, eight, 10, 12, 14 inches, you know, in one motion, but it's at the end of the day, I mean, it's what you said, Gary, at the end of the day, it's results. It doesn't matter how you do it just yep. as if you're going to get it done. Absolutely. And see that that's to that way you're saying they're moving the glove that much. And I, I can't remember where it was. I was, I was talking to my, my, my agent uh, was in here before he went back to spring training with his son, but uh, how many pitches umpires actually missed last year as a whole I mean, it wasn't more than over like two and a half to three and a half percent of pitches and were missed, but you're talking hundreds of pitches in a game and you're, you know, maybe, maybe 10, 10, 15 balls get missed. Maybe at that, I mean, or five, I mean, if you have 300 pitches in a game and you're missing five, six pitches, that's, that's a pretty pretty good good, average, pretty good average. So we're not missing too much. So, I mean, if the guys are moving it that much, I don't know if they're really manipulating the ball that much to, take the umpire's view really to really make the difference if they're calling it before he catches it then they're pretty damn good mm-hmm. I mean, if their mind's already made it up before they caught it i mean that that split of a second then they're pretty good so i don't know if we're 
trying to, if we should really be moving it that much. I mean, that's guys can't be that bad behind the plate. This isn't the Little League World Series. You know, I mean, these guys, once they get into professional baseball umpiring, they've got a good idea of, of what the strike zone is and what guys do behind the plate. So, I mean, that's, I think that some of the stuff gets a little bit too, too erratic. Gary, what's your thoughts on the, uh, on the television simulated strike box since Can't they don't stand. call it a zone? Is it, I, I think that's the, that I said it last time, man. That's the big. That's my big pet peeve. Is as soon as I thought, came out. Chris, I thought you were going to start talking about the cheating there for a second about the TVs. I, I thought you were getting ready to go there. Sorry, I was like, oh crap, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, just I mean, just, that's the same thing. Their guys are, you know, they're be on television, and the announcers are like, you know, he's missed. He the umpire missed that pitch, and that was a strike. You're you're also catching a ball that's out of a hand into your glove in about a third of a second. And I don't know. I mean, it's always been, like I said, it's a strike zone. It's not a strike box. But I, I hated that thing. I just wanted to confirm with you as well. We also all know that technology is also human error, too. I mean, that's no way technology is going to be perfect. There's, it couldn't be. Well, that box we see on TV, too, I don't believe it adjusts per hitter height-wise. It's also from a camera that's off-center. It's not right mm -hmm. behind home plate. So that box is, is not accurate. So that, that's the thing that frustrates me is the people at home say, oh, he missed that. Well, you're looking at a camera that's 10, 15 feet to the pitcher's right. You're looking at a box that stays the same for every hitter. So I, yeah, maybe the fans love it. It's 400 feet away. <laughs> exactly. You know, now maybe the fans love it. And if, if they do, then, okay, stay with it. But I, I can't stand it. I hate it when it's on TV. So we're sitting here right now talking with Gary Bennett. Gary, we can uh, follow you on Twitter at GDBJR5, um, former Major League catcher. Gary, I got a question for you. I'm curious this one. Um, you were with the St. Louis Cardinals in 2006, and you had a pitching coach by the name of Dave Duncan, a former catcher. How was that yes. interaction with him, somebody that had – caught what he was acting as the pitching coach curious your thoughts on that hey, good research there good real good research very nice on top why he's the man <laughs> <laughs> uh obviously by the time i was around uh dunk he had a long career as a player and as a coach uh very very highly respected highly regarded in the game um and and with that whole st louis crew it was it was a lot of fun uh, just, just the way they approached their attention to detail that was different there than anywhere else I'd been. And Dunk had a, geez, a, a rolling cabinet of, of binders and files from years and years. And it was fun give, getting his perspective uh, working with pitchers as a former catcher um, and, and the way he would talk about because some, sometimes you get into these pitchers' meetings and, and with other teams, and I'm, I won't go into detail or, or specifics or names, but hey, you can't throw this, you can't throw this, and we can't go here in this situation. And you're like, well, what, what the hell? How do we go at them? What can we throw? You know, just walk them. You know, where Dunk very rarely <laughs> did that and had, had a, a unique way of, of picking uh, weaknesses out or tendencies or trends. And just, I think, because his perspective is from where our perspective was. And you could mm -hmm. see and feel things differently back there that other people that haven't been back there, they, they can't do it and they can't relate to it. So, he definitely had a different way of working with pitchers and picking up tendencies and weaknesses. And then also a way to work with pitchers on, on their technique and what they're doing with the baseball. Cause like I said, it was a totally different perspective versus a former pitcher, not, not better, not worse, just a different perspective from a, from a catcher's vantage point than a pitching coach vantage point. So it was certainly unique and, and you can't say 
enough about his track record and his success at the major league level. I mean, do you feel like more catchers or ex-catchers should become pitching coaches? Do you think that's a, a good segue? I think a lot of people jump into, okay, I'm going to be a hitting coordinator. I'm going to be a catching coordinator because that's what I know. How come nobody has taken that leap? Or did you ever consider maybe becoming a pitching coach at, at, at the professional level or at the collegiate level? Um, hell no. <laughs> that's, I miss a lot of things. I miss a lot of things about the game, but dealing with pitchers every single day, that's not one of them. No. Not athletes. Absolutely <laughs> not, man. The, the, no, but I'll, I'll, in all seriousness, um, I think Dunk was very unique in his ability to, to transition and do that. Um, I don't know if, if, if I'd be any good at doing it. Um, you know, and there's certainly Mike, Mike Maddox was a pitching coach I had in, in Milwaukee and he was unbelievable. You know, he, he was extremely yep. very good at what he did. And, and, you know, I, they're both in the, under the number one category for me. And there's a host of others underneath them that, that I really, really enjoyed working with. So I, I don't know if uh, catchers uh, as a group should automatically attack the pitching coach position. I'm, I'm certainly not going to, uh, advocate or suggest that i'm gonna stay away from that with tyler <laughs> i'm gonna ask you a question here on, on that is is um you know what was the experience like um because neither one of us here have experienced a well at least a world series championship at the major league level you know what what was that like i mean i got some insight you know from from a an infielder you know from uh pete when he was with st louis in that time but as a catcher you know what what's it what's it like going through all that what's preparation and you know, in series, what's, what's that like? So with, with, uh, when I signed with, uh, St. Louis and, and went into spring training and then looked around the room, it was the first time I'd, I'd been on some talented teams, you know, uh, but it was the first time I walked into a room and saw the amount of talent and the expectation. We weren't out, they weren't out with me cause I just joined the team, but they weren't at least saying, Hey, we're going to the world series. But that was the intention from day one. It wasn't like, we hope we're going to have a good year. It was expected. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, you see Roland, Edmonds, Pujols, uh, you know, Eckstein, the pitching staff that had Mulder, Carpenter, uh, Isringhausen, uh, just the, the, the talent was just Molina behind the plate. You looked around the room like, wow, this is, this is pretty unique. I haven't been in this situation before. So going yeah. into it, it was different from day one for me. Um, like I said, the other teams, we had always, the goal had always been there and the hope was we could play well enough to compete. To, to get to the postseason, this walk into that clubhouse, it was expected. Um, so that was unique to start with. And then um, as a group, um, they, you know, it's cliche. Everyone's pulling on the same end of the rope. But it, it really was when the pitchers, I'll give an example. So let's say uh, Mark Mulder's going to throw a bullpen. Chris Carpenter, uh, Jeff Supon, Anthony Reyes, all the other starters would walk down to the bullpen with him. And they'd watch him throw his bullpen and they would watch everything. You know, <laughs> are you tipping anything? Are you doing anything different here? What could you, are you not finishing this? And they would, they with the pitcher, with Duncan and with the bullpen coach, Marty Mason would all work collectively with each person. So every time one pitcher went down, the whole group went. That's awesome. And it was, it was wow. phenomenal, you know, and then wow. the, the outfielders, the hitters meetings, the, everything it was, it's, it really was everyone pulling on the same side of the rope. The, 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 the only uh, goal, it, was to play as well as we could to position ourselves for, for postseason play. And there was no hidden agenda. And if you weren't doing the work that was necessary to be done, someone in that clubhouse was going to call you out. If you're That's getting awesome. lazy with looking at scouting reports, if in team meetings, 
you know, you haven't talked in three or 14 meetings. They say, man, are you, are you here? You got anything to add? I mean, this, come on, you got, got to get with us here, what we're trying to do. So it was, yeah. it was unique in that regard. And then, sorry for the long answer, but. To, no, to, no, this is, this is great, man. Uh, the way it worked through and, and it was, a, it wasn't without its bumps. I think we had three, eight game losing streaks that year. And uh, Pujols went out with an oblique injury. Uh, Edmonds went out concussion. We lost Eckstein at one point, uh, made him a hammy or, or a wrist. I think Roland went down at one time. Isringhausen needed surgery, so there were things that happened throughout there that was that were challenging. But it was there wasn't any "woe is us." Oh damn, here we go! It's like, all right, you plug in, let's go, let's let's keep moving forward. So, and then once we hit the playoffs, so I think we went into the playoffs. No one was expecting much from us, and then we went into San Diego. On paper, the Mets were a monster. Uh, San Diego was very talented that year. And I remember walking in the clubhouse with uh, Scott Spezio, and we looked at the starting lineup for that game one, and Eckstein, Roland, uh, uh, Hose, everybody who at one point or another had been hurt throughout the season, everybody was healthy. And at the first time since that April, I think that that was the case. Oh, wow. And, and I believe that April uh, was the most – I think we set a record for most wins in St. Louis history, but I think 2011 team broke it. In the history of the Cardinals in that April. So that April, we're on fire. And pool also, we start, you know, some of the injuries start ticking off. But I remember walking in that clubhouse and Spees both looked at each other after looking at that line, but like, damn, man, everybody's healthy. That looks like, that looks pretty damn good. And then, you know, <laughs> went through the playoffs. We're not losing. Series, <laughs> went through the playoffs, won the World Series. And it was, it's, it's so hard to put into words what it was. I mean, we've all, I'm assuming, played wiffle ball in the backyard or, throwing a ball up and hitting it yourself and as a seven-year-old hitting a home run game seven of world series or thinking about dog piling and it was there's nothing i could there's not enough things i could pile on birthdays holidays snow days whatever that 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 yeah. put into the emotion of, of what it was when that happened i mean lifelong goals for all of us and and phew, i i got to i was fortunate enough to have to see it come through what time did you guys get out of the clubhouse that night? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, it was late. It, it was certainly late. And then uh, we carried that over to another establishment uh, not too far from, from the stadium. And uh, some of the St. Louis faithful came out and uh, enjoyed it with us. So nice. a few Diet awesome. Pepsis, a few slaps on the back, lots of hugs. And it was, right. it was amazing. I can, uh, I can appreciate the Caddyshack painting, though, behind you. I, I just noticed that behind you. That's, that's uh, Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. I dig that. And the Caddyshack next to the Peloton. All right. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that, that was a shameless plug for Peloton right there for anybody. Gary <laughs> <laughs> uses a Peloton. I use, I use Judge Snails as my motivation while I'm on the Peloton. There you go. That's awesome. Real quick, just because it's because uh, the name of the show is The Mound Visit, obviously. You have any either minor league or major league guys that you went out to talk to somebody on the mound and, and it got eventful? <laughs> Uh, there's, as, as you guys know, I'm sure you had, there's, there's some, uh, interesting conversations that, that happen on the mound, but, uh, nothing too crazy. I'll tell you two that stick out for me. Um, one was, uh, Kent Merker, left-handed pitcher. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you guys remember that name. Pitched yeah, for a long time. Ab yep. Absolutely hated mound visits. Hated. <laughs> so we were in Colorado <laughs> together in 02 and, uh, you know, he's, he's nibbling. He doesn't nibble. I shouldn't say that. He was, he was missing the zone. He wasn't on. Wasn't sharp. Falling behind the counts. Ball hitting the gap. Fall behind the count. Another ball hitting the gap. Uh, ball one. Home run. Then he walks the guy. And I go to the mound, and you can see he's, he's fuming. One, about how he's pitching. But two, that I'm coming to the mound. 
and I'm going to try to not use any bad language or keep this a family show, but there was some very creative language used as soon as I got to the mound. He starts on me. <laughs> and I just sat there with my mask on, looked at him, and let him go for a minute or so. I said, you done? And he got on me again. I said, hey, man, do you think I want to walk my ass out here to the mound? I said, if you could get somebody out, I'll happily sit back there and catch all the outs you've got to offer. But that ain't happening right now. That's why I'm out here. He's yelling and bitching and moaning. So that was one of them. Second one is Jarrett Wright. We're, in, we're playing the Giants at, at Pac Bell or what's it called now? Or it was AT&T or it is AT&T mm-hmm. now. So it's packed. It's 2002. The Giants are good. It's rowdy. We're up one run, sixth, seventh inning. And um, Jarrett and I would always go back and forth. If, if he shook me, sometimes I'd go back with what I wanted. He'd shake again. And, you know, we, we'd have interesting conversations after the game. So this had gone on a couple months. So I, it might have been Richard, really. I forget who was hitting. And, and Jarrett was cutting it loose that day. He was mid to upper 90s, locating. So it's, it's one, two. Got a man on first base. I right, fastball in. He shakes. I go fastball in, he shakes again. So he steps off the mound and just kind of tilts his head back and gives me like the nods up, come out here. So I go out there and he puts his glove over his mouth and he said, hey, when I such and such shake, put down another blanking sign. He looks at me in the eye and I said, you got it, boss. And I slapped him on the back as hard as I could, like right on the top shoulder. <laughs> I jog back to the, we get out of the inning sit down he comes sits next to me he goes could have done without slap on the back and then just walked away <laughs> yeah, that was sounding a little bit of a, a little bit of a bull durham reference on that one oh, nice. i wanted when to that, announce my presence with authority hmm. there you yeah. go <laughs> some very creative uh language and interesting conversations sometimes well it's oh, it's funny because you just mentioned you just mentioned that he put his glove over his head now, I think it was on, uh, I think I messaged you the other day. <laughs> so we were talking about, uh, we were talking about when you go out for a mound visit, pitchers typically put their, their hand over their mouth. And I always ask the kids, I'm like, how come? And they're like, well, cause lip reading. And, you know, I'm like, well, I've never met anyone that could lip reading. I said, normally they're just simply cussing you under their breath, but they don't want anyone to see it. But they're, you know, they're saying every word in the book. Well, till you get out there, then it's like, why are you out here? Well, Gary, I asked Gary, I'm like, you ever know any lip readers? He's like, yeah, I could. So I would love to hear this because I, and and here's the best thing. He said he could do it in Spanish too. No, 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 no. I said, I, oh, said, I must have misinterpreted. I, no, I said, if you say cambio, I'm going to, I'm going to pick that up. But oh, yeah. obviously I was joking with you when I said I am one of the lip reader. I was going to say, you know, I was certified <laughs> lip reader in high school. <laughs> Good. Cause I, I haven't met anyone and I'm like, well, that's just, uh, uh, then I'm, no, I'm nowhere near that level ever. That's insane. <laughs> so, that's yeah, awesome. but I'm, I mean, with the TVs, uh, you know, and everything obviously that goes on, I'm, I'm sure they can, they can see when the audio is up close, but I tell the kids in high school and in college and that I said, you can't really read lip read any lips i said your coach can't either and plus he's you know he's 100 feet away from you it's right. not happening i said they're just they're just talking smack about you under your breath that's it and it, and it makes us look really important like we got some you know top secret stuff to discuss oh absolutely <laughs> absolutely what is he talking about jesus all right you'll never know <laughs> actually a question about since it's spring training time and the guys are they're gearing up and some of their minor league guys just now getting ready to go back which i can't remember spring training starting this late for some guys i, I can't remember reporting the spring training even when i I went to Bigley camp for a few times, but even when I was in Marley camp, I can't remember reporting this late in spring training. Um, what things did you do to prepare uh, to get ready 
to go to spring training because now, you know, before people used to say, you know, you go to spring training, get ready to get ready for your season. Well, now it's, you know, it's been years back. You know, you go into spring training ready. Like you're ready when you get to spring training to win a job, to take a job, to show somebody you're ready to play that day. Um, what was your, your off-season mentality like? What kind of things did, did you go through? I was lucky enough that, uh, you know, I, there's a few players that lived around me, a couple arms I could catch every now and then. But I, I tried to, one, get in the best shape I could because I knew, as we know, the season goes on, we play ourselves out of shape for the most part. But, you know, try to regain some strength, put on weight, get a little stronger, lower body. Um, and then a lot of it was spent hitting, you know, trying to to get to know my swing better, uh, try, hopefully improve on it. Um, I didn't do a whole lot uh, defensively uh, – probably once I was 24, 25, but up until that, you know, block every winter, 18, 19, 20 years old. I would, I would cause we don't have a good grasp on it yet. So I would get right. after it that way. But near the end was basically, basically trying to, I shouldn't say near the end, the last 10 spring trainings I went to, uh, trying to get as strong as I could, trying to get as flexible as I could. And then obviously improving any, any and every way I could with my swing offensively to hopefully be a little more competitive on that side. I want to go back cause, um, not to, to beat this too much, but the one knee stuff, CJ, you know, you, yeah. you start talking about the, the teaching younger guys. Mm -hmm. And I know, uh, uh, Snooze, you were talking about introducing it to young guys too. Mm -hmm. My, my, and we could talk about this with hitting too, which we won't, I don't know if we're talking catching, but I, I think it relates where I think sometimes, especially when I see young catchers, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, and I'll see, like last year, I saw a couple guys in the game just catching primarily on one knee. The issue I have with that, and this is my opinion, I'm right, wrong, whatever, feel free to disagree all you want. I don't think they have a, a solid enough foundation of, of catching basics. Mm -hmm. Like if you bring up a, a Salvador Perez or a JT or any of those, those guys are, can, tech, can catch oh, yeah. textbook if they wanted to. They're so yep. fundamentally sound. Mm -hmm that they could do anything they want behind the plate now. And I think sometimes with young players, uh, we try to get too uh, advanced too early with catching. And, and if, unless they're able to consistently block and move side to side and create some leg strength and mm -hmm. body awareness, introduce it, yes, maybe, you know, with no one on base and two outs, you want to catch two fastballs, right. go ahead. Yep. But to have these young guys focus on working on that, I, I don't mm -hmm. understand it and I don't necessarily agree with it. There again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying that's that's where I get have take exception to it when they don't even have a foundation to build off of yet, and we're trying to teach them stuff the guys in the big leagues are doing. Mm -hmm. I guess this is maybe a, a step aside off off this topic, but it, it somewhat relates. So let's say you have a, and I don't know, do you do any you know some instruction on the side? If you do, how would you introduce that to a 12-year-old or a 13-year-old or even a high school or college kid? How, what would you start with? I guess, you know, more or less for our listeners, like, okay, you caught 13 years in the big leagues. You played a lot more professional baseball than that. And you, what, where would you start with one of these guys? And then when they come to you and they start setting up on a knee, what would be your response to them? I do. I do uh, work with with young catchers, and then some kid kids in college, and a couple guys are in the minor leagues now, which is awesome to watch. We have a, a part of a facility here just north of Chicago, uh, and I have been since two thousand eight. Um, Give them a plug. So, yeah. What's that? Who is it? Give them the plug. Uh, it's Slammers, Illinois. Is the name of the okay, facility. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and, and Tyler, where I would start with, where I do start with it, is mainly uh, receiving. You know, if we're working off the machine, and rather than squat there for 
15 minutes. Obviously, they're going to get fried, which we rotate them through, but they don't. But I'll have them set in there, you know, just sit relaxed like you're giving a sign, receive there, get into your secondary position. Let's work on receiving there off your left knee, low inside out. And then maybe the third or fourth round, hey, just sit on one knee. Let's really just work your hands and focus on the low pitch, whether it's picking it, whether it's getting underneath it and working up. Introduce it that way. Um, that's that's kind of what I, I do do. So, um, but I don't focus on the one knee. Usually when we're doing our drills, I want them as athletic as they can be. And I know you guys talked about that a lot in the first part, be athletic. We're certainly more athletic in our secondary stance up, down, left, and right than we are on one knee. No, no one, nothing anybody can say to convince me differently. So there, I want them to focus on being as athletic as they can and building that catching foundation. And once they can do that, then we can get creative with some other stuff. That's my right. thought. Absolutely. Yeah, we'll introduce it as a leg saver, you know, as the, as the game goes on. Hey, we know if you're catching three, four games in a day, if one team's only got maybe one good catcher, the other one, man, you put them back there, it's just kind of like giving the guy a break for, you know, a couple innings. Give yourself a break here and there on a fastball, you know, or nobody on base, less than two outs. And that's not a dangerous situation that could, you know, hinder your team. Absolutely. That and that's kind of where we brace that into. And then, then we've got some guys that uh, – since I know, like, uh, Coach Driver is now with uh, the Cubs as their catching coordinator. I've got a couple guys that are there. And when they were here in the offseason, we'd work on, you know, hey, they wanted them to th- make sure they could focus on being able to work a one-knee setup or make sure you're really working on inverting their pocket to to work, you know, that kind of a 12, 6 to 12 movement in that area. Sure. But they're also already, like you talked about, a different type of athlete. You know, they've been doing it. They've got some established movements to what they do. They're, they're professionals already. You know, you're not just going to say, hey, I created this guy from this to this. They've already got movement patterns that are set to them now. So I, I like that. I think the younger kids too, you, you also have to let them know that it's going to be what we talked about before. It's got to be situational, you know? Yep. So if you're, you know, I mean, when I was younger, I was taught on a pitch, like a two strike fastball that's off the corner. You're trying to steal strike. You, you know, you stab out at it, but you also drop that knee down at the same time you lock out and it gives that appearance. I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of different things like that, but you can't just say, hey, first pitch of the game, I'm going to do it this way. Second pitch, I'm doing it this way. If it's a curveball, I have to do it this way. Because then as they get older, you know, people are going to know, well, if he goes down here, typically he does it for breaking balls. You know, and when the kids right. get older, they see that stuff, and they have to. They have to be more athletic. They have to understand, number one, the feel of the, the ball hitting your hand, hitting the glove, and then mm-hmm. what is your hand going to do after that? Where should it be positioned? Where should it finish? You know, and then work the body second for a pitcher, especially the younger kids. I mean, I'm I'm taking a, a stab at coaching uh, high school this year and hoping the kids will, you know, have some somewhat of an good idea luck. about command. I know, but uh, <laughs> they're I mean they're they're pretty good from what I've seen so far. But I, I work with one of the catchers, and I've I've always said, look, I just want them throwing to your chest. I don't care about anything else, but I want you to be, uh, when they look down at you, that you're lo- they're looking and they're seeing almost an, uh, an oval, you know, for a target right. instead of, you know, instead of a triangle with the guys with the, the knees touching and the heels out. And, you know, I want them big because, you know, I would rather have a, a guy miss to an area than try to be something super specific and then just get them further off in the hole. You know, Chris, you said something there too that was, that's really important is – how they set up per pitch. And I think that gets lost with a lot of younger catchers too, is I, I can sit there and I've gone out and watched some of our, our academy teams that we have with Sandlot, um, the, the Tulsa Sandlot club that we've got here. And 
you can watch these other teams set up with the guys that teach their catchers and vice versa and even high school guys. You can call a pitch by just how the catcher sets his feet up. You know, one way he might be a little more turned into the corner when he goes this side or set up here or he sets up with his feet and, or moves the left foot before he moves his right foot. I mean, there's so many different things you can look at and kids don't realize that, you know, you can pick up so many different things by just what you do as a catcher and, and giving away your pitchers, you know, his sequences and everything else just by what you do. And I don't think they take that serious enough to – that's going to prolong them as they go further. That's just not – that's part of what's got to be in their repertoire of I've got to be a very quality catcher from going to go to the next level. I, I can't just give away everything pitch to pitch. Well, you, you said that that right there, just, you know, looking at how they set up. You know, we'd be able to pick out a, a guy if he was going in or out just by, you know, if you're going away to a righty, you'll see a lot of times guys will move their right foot first. You know, and if it's le- going inside, they move their left foot first. And there, you see this stuff, but you talk to the normal kid or a normal parent or normal coach, and they're like, really? You guys look for that? And to <laughs> us, to us, that's second nature. We're like, yeah, why wouldn't you? You know, do you not see his elbow twitching? That means he's given the catcher's given a curveball. You know, now you just got to, I won't say bang on a garbage can, but we'll, you know, <laughs> figure that out. But, yeah, I mean, we, we, all, we all know how, you know, the tendencies that catchers give. And, it, you know, we teach the kids to be aware of that. So when they're, they are giving a sign, they're not, they're not making it blatantly obvious to the other team who's watching them, you know, what's happening to prevent this stuff. And I, and I think that's perfect. We're talking about all these different when, when you're introducing six things for a catcher to do versus hey let's be consistent with our one stance and our secondary stance and then let's build mm-hmm. and, that, and that's i guess what it, where it gets me is when the young guys not just to go backwards is a, a lot of stuff gets introduced force fed too much because look the guy on tv's doing that well you're not ready for that they've caught thousands of innings and hundreds of thousands of balls where you're you know you're in a couple hundred right now Exactly. I mean, do you do you still watch baseball? And um, if you do, is there any particular catchers that that you really like and what they're doing? And um, I guess go from there. Yeah, yeah. Yachty's still fun to watch. Um, uh, JT, the cat, the cat in Philly, is he's silly. I, I enjoy uh, just how athletic and the stuff he can do behind the plate. He's he's really good. Buster was fun to watch. You know, he's mm-hmm. he's he's the the miles are starting to. to to, to build up on him. So he's on the down Well, I shouldn't say he's on the down slope, but he's, he's certainly not at his peak. Uh, those would probably be the three that stick out. Uh, Salvador Perez, certainly he was a lot of fun to watch as well, but that, that cat in Philly right now, he's, he's special, man. I really enjoyed watching him. Do you think Posey had a coach that actually took him aside to say, in case you're ever going to get into a collision, here's what you should do and what you shouldn't do. The, uh, I, I'm right there with you. He put snoozer. He put he put himself in a horrible position. Unfortunately, <laughs> that guy that unfortunately that guy that ran him over took heat. He shouldn't have taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What What do you think about? I mean, that was always something. I mean, I played hockey when I was younger. I loved collisions. I loved getting low. I loved having guys flip over the top, or you know, spinning off of them. Um, even the, the way Mike Sosha used to do, he used to literally lay down and stick his knees in front of the plate and force yep. you to slide into him. You know, that was, that's almost an art in itself too. And, you know, guys ask, well, you know, everything is so protective right now. It, it takes away, it, it takes away that part of the game that was, you know, the aggressiveness was something that 
some people welcomed. And you know, when you were when you're growing up and you're going to be a catcher, they're like, man, you got to be a different cat to be back there. You, know, you got to be a little crazy in the head because you got balls being thrown at that you got to want it to hit your body. You got guys that are going to try to truck you, and you got to say, okay, just make sure you leave your mask on. Yeah. You know, yeah. how how are the you know for you doing you know doing some stuff on TV and everything and probably have more access to talking to guys over the last few years when that came out and they got rid of that rule where there's no more collisions you have to slide in or slide away you know how did how guys feel about that you know their catchers are like thank god or they're like man that sucks i i enjoyed that part of the game well i think most of us uh the four of us and, and us as catchers anyone else out there would agree that we were all happy that see the part to me that i didn't like was if the throw was coming from right field, and we were a foot in front of the plate because there really wasn't going to be a play. And then there were certain runners that would punch it. I mean, you're, you're naked. You're not even looking at them. You've given up the plate, and there's still guys that would go after you. Uh, that's the only part about collisions at the plate I didn't like. The other – I shouldn't say I didn't like. I, I didn't accept. I mean, you said you like getting pummeled. It uh, wasn't my favorite thing to do, but it, it's part of the gig, and I knew that. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing where if we were up the first baseline or, or the plate was there, guys wouldn't go out of their way to hit you. Uh, but outside of that, yeah, yeah, there were some catchers that were like, you know, that, that takes that kind of that being a little, little nuts, a little not so dumb and a little aggressive away mm -hmm. from what we do back there. But the, I would say the only benefit there, the, the only positive, I shouldn't say the only, one of the positives, you got guys that won't go out of their way to hit. They can't go out. Of, well, they still can, but they're out. Yeah. Go out of their way to hit you when the plate is is open, you know. Versus if it's bang bang and you're hanging in there, then by all means, you do what you got to do, and I'm gonna do what I got to do. But if there's not gonna be a play and I've given up the plate, you still come after me. That's that's the kind of stuff that's yeah. Yeah, when you're going out of your way to to hurt someone. I mean, if it, if it's a if it's a bang bang play, then I was always all for it, you know. Absolutely. But I don't I don't think I ever was in a position where I had someone literally come up the line and try to. You know, even like on a, a force play home, you know, bases loaded and you got the runner bearing down. We were always taught to slide and try to try to touch him, try to knock him off his throw a little bit, not to, you know, not to try to flip him over. Yeah. Um, you know, but like I said, I, I think it was just a, it's a different era, you know, that we're in right now. And, you know, the game is continually changing and we all have to kind of uh, kind of change with it and see where it goes. And I, I think the big point, going back to Buster, as we talk about collisions at the plate, is is we had to make sure we put ourselves in a position where we're at least likely to get hurt. Yeah. You know, and, he, and with his leg behind him and he wasn't really expecting to get run over, then that's that's how he got caught vulnerable. Yeah. I, I mean, I saw when I saw that happen, I was just like, before it happened, I'm like, oh, my God, what are you doing? What? Are yeah. you, no, no. You know, and then it happened, and you want to be like, God, you know, how 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 does – how do you get in that position to allow it to happen? But, you know, he was a, I mean, he was a former shortstop, tremendous athlete, you know, great arm, love watching the stuff, you know, his highlight videos are, you can sit and watch those for hours. You know, he's just he's a special talent back there. So is your son a catcher? Uh, yes. Both. I have a, a freshman at Mizzou who's a catcher. I have a junior in high school who's a catcher. And then I have a daughter, a uh, freshman who's volleyball and uh, soccer. So the two boys, they had, they had a choice. I mean, it, it was up to them. It was either they caught or they get beat every Tuesday night. So it was up to them. I, it didn't matter to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, choose, so choose the latter. The catching is going to be a little bit easier on your body. If not, I'm just going to beat the tar out of you, right? There you go. <laughs>
But yeah, nice. it's fun. They, they both catch and they, they seem to enjoy it. And it's uh, most of the time it's fun for me. Uh, the times they look at me like I have two heads, it's, I don't I appreciate that too much. Just, you know, dad, what the hell are you talking about? What do you know? But other than that, getting, getting to work with them and, and, you know, just honing the craft and doing the small stuff we all did, working on the receiving, working on the blocking, man. I, I love it. Isn't that a constant though, kid? Your own kids look at you like I, I've got experience. With like, dude, your dad just yeah, shut up, leave me alone. You know, I, yeah, you know <laughs> I did this a little bit at one time, right? It's I think I think it's a constant. I mean, I, my I've got two kids of my own that they played softball and baseball. And uh, um, did you how many uh, how many sports did you play? Did you play multiple sports as you were coming through uh, uh, high school and basketball, football, baseball? I played all, all three, three until my senior year. I broke my leg in football and uh, did not play basketball that year. I broke my leg near the end of the season. Goodness. Do your boy, uh, both your boys play multiple sports as they're coming so, through as well? The one at Missouri was uh, football, wrestling, baseball, and then he stopped wrestling after sophomore year. And the younger one is uh, uh, football, baseball, still playing football. Right on. What, uh, what positions of football they play? Uh, they both play cornerback. So okay. they, got speed, they got their speed from their mom. Wow. <laughs> so, there, so there's some fast catch. You just beat me to catches. the punch on that one. God, I was ready to drop that. And... I beat you to it, Snoozer. Yes, yeah, you did. I knew it was coming. There are some I speedy started, catches. I started foaming at the mouth at that one. I'm like, I, I know he's not going to say he got him from him. <laughs> like I said, I'm glad you guys are doing this. This is uh, long overdue. We're relying. I think we get back to the relying on too much technology instead of just the individual and feel and everything else. Because I mean, it, I think with the technology, and this is my fear with it, is that we're going to become we're going to become cookie cutter, and that organizations are going to be able to go, okay, so we like this, we want you to do it this way, and if you can't do it this way, then you're probably not going to play for us because the data and Analytics show that if we do it this way, this is going to work for us, taking human element yeah. completely out of it. And it goes back to, you know, what they talk about is, you know, when and, and Moneyball, you know, that Moneyball, you can't tell them what's that guy like, what's inside that person, what's he feeling, what's he going through, you know? He's 0 for 10 right now. What's he struggling with? Swing looks fine. What's he dealing with? What's wrong with him? Well, analytically, he sucks. Well, swing looks good, but he's not hitting. What's wrong? Well, there's something always a little bit underlying. I mean, I don't think we – we value that part of the game anymore to the athlete. It's, I think we're getting away from that. What, what's well, your thought on that? Yeah, no, no, the feel, the intangibles, um, things they can't quantify. When I say they, I think I'm, I'm just saying they, people that are so analytically driven or the pendulum has swung so far to one way for them that that's the only way or the main way they evaluate somebody. Um, they're so much more involved. Uh, uh, you know, how, how they deal with adversity, what kind of a teammate are they? I mean, We've all seen guys with more talent than 99.9% of us, but mm-hmm. one, they were horrible teammates, and, and two, they once the game started, they couldn't perform. Mm-hmm. You know, so from all the metrics, they should have been in the Hall of Fame. You know, but the, and then we've seen guys, I'm one of them. I, I wasn't the most talented guy in the world. I've kicked around and wore my welk about in a few times. If, if they would have put metrics on me, I probably would have never got a shot for some things, you know, and it's there's there's a lot more that goes into it so hopefully the pendulum will swing back i certainly think there's a place in the equation for a lot of this data to give us a better picture on a complete picture on on an athlete right, right. uh but some people go way over, over the top with it i just want to say real quick on i was on twitter this morning and there was a topic about um the the new rule changes and as far as the pickoff moves taking that away from lefties um, inside moves from a righty with a guy in second. All these rule changes, 
that are, you're exactly right, taking out human element, taking out, you know, the, the pageantry of the game, you know, having a, a coach go and argue with, a, with an umpire and go nose to nose, spit on spit, you know, talking about who's right, who's wrong. You know, it, all that stuff seems like it's trying to get weeded out of the game. Um, thoughts on that? So with, with some of these changes, has anybody heard why? Why, no. why does the left-hander have to step off? Why no inside move? Why this change? Why, what's, what's the objective? Well, that was because they, they want more people stealing bases. That's what I read this morning. That's the only reason. So they're going to eliminate, eliminate certain pickoff moves because they're, they can be deceptive. Imagine that. And, uh, <laughs> I, I mean, it, yeah, if you, if you face a guy with – I mean, you remember Larry Wimberly, right, with the Phillies? Yes, absolutely. So Larry had one of the best lefty moves. I remember we we had a we had a scrimmage game, and he did the move where he took his you know wiped his head and ball was in his hand in his in his hat holding his glove in the other hand, picked me off. But I mean, there are guys that you you know that Pettit was another one. They they made their living picking people oh, yeah. off, yep. you know. And when you eliminate that, then what's where's it going to be next? You know, you're going to have ghost runners on first and. And saying, I don't know, I, I'm just, I'm not a big fan of all of these, like there's so many changes being thrown at you all at once, you know, it, it's not even saying, hey, we're going to try this for a couple of years, it's, oh, we're going to go robot umpires, we're going to take away inside moves and this, you can't do this, that, or, you know, what, what is the game going to become 10 years from now? So oh, Lord, just, inside yeah. moves and takeoffs. This could be a whole nother rendition, a whole nother podcast. That's really, we need to get some pictures on for that one, yeah. You do. Yeah, it'd be a good one to talk to them about. Yeah, but that, that's the thing I, I, with the changes. Do they want more runs? I don't even know what have runs done. I have no idea. In the last five, six, ten years, where, where are runs? Are they way down? Are they about the same? Are they up? I, is that what they no want, idea. more runs? I don't know, but they can't say the attendance is down. They can't say they're not making money because I know this is like the third year in a row that the revenue share has been the highest it's ever been in Major League Baseball history. And I know probably shouldn't say this, but stop screwing with the freaking game. With yeah. you, man. Damn. Just let the game be. I know we got too many guys with their hands in the pot trying to change stuff. I mean, well, we if it ain't can, broke, don't fix right, it. <laughs> right, and we can switch this over to a hitting podcast if we wanted to. But oh my god, yeah. anymore. There's no hit and runs. I mean, yeah, stop striking out. How about that one? Let's let's let the launch angle. Uh, you know, no, no, it's exit. Oh. Exit. It's exit. Don't, Come on. Don't, don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to keep us on another two hours. Don't go there. Dump the barrel, throw the barrel, swing uphill, and then break your back in the third vertebrae, and then the lumbars uh, kick in. Right. <laughs> this, that'd be a good segue for you to talk about the, the Jeff Fry Twitter. Uh, oh, snoozers. man, that was awesome. Yeah, that, that, that was, was that great. Was <laughs> yeah. That was awesome. I, I love yeah, how I, he said, how did we – uh, I love how he said – how are we any good if we didn't know all this stuff back then? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gary, man, this has been awesome, man. We really, really appreciate this. I enjoyed yeah, it, guys. We didn't keep Thanks. you on too long, Gary. No, not at all. All right. Well, like I said, Gary, thank you for coming on. Uh, this is this is great to hear your insight on on a ton of different topics. Always good to uh, always good to see you know some people we ran across back in the day. Um, yeah, I mean, we're, we'd love to have you back on again. Uh, trying Anytime. to build this thing up. So, if you got any Absolutely. of your buddies that want to come on and had a good time, by all means, have them uh, have them DM us, shoot us a message, and love to have uh, the more guys, the merrier. So, I'll, I'll have plenty for you, man. That's that's like I said, it's um, it's awesome you guys are doing this. Talk and catch it, man. This is long overdue. Let's enjoy <laughs> it, man. Great time, Tyler, CJ. Nice to meet you and talk with you guys. Nice. To Likewise, have a good one, Gary. Thanks again, bud. All right, fellas. All right. See you. Take, Take care. care.
Well, everybody, that's a wrap, and we're going to head on home. <laughs> yes, pun intended. Well, on behalf of myself, CJ Metal and Midwest Catching Academy, Tyler Goodrow of Goodrow Catching Company, and Chris News of Energy Catching, we thank you for tuning in to listen to our podcast. And tune in next week when we have a special guest appearance from either a catching coordinator or a player out there in spring training in Arizona. Guys, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you later. <laughs>